Welcome back to the Villainies Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you on a somber Tuesday here in Boulder, Colorado. We have a great podcast for you today. I say somber because today's podcast is going to be all about the Amgen Tour of California, which uh, we learned a week ago is taking a hiatus for 2020. That's the language that AEG, the race owner, has used anyway. Taking a hiatus, the 2020 edition of the race is canceled. And we're going to talk today a lot about the Tour of California, the challenging business climate and economics around the race that undoubtedly led to its cancellation for 2020. Um, some of the reporting that we've done around the race, uh, the history of it, what it meant to the riders, and then what its disappearance means as well. Uh, second half of the show, we actually have a great interview with TJ Van Garderen. Um, winner of the 2013 edition. And TJ shares some thoughts and memories from California, uh, not just from the year that he won, but really how uh, it was those uh, tours of California 2011 and 12 that served as uh, just a real learning experience for him as he uh, progressed as a world tour pro. Um, But before we get to TJ, we have, as always, Mr. Andrew Hood chiming in from Spain. Andy... (laughs) When you heard that the Tour of California had uh, taken a torpedo, taken a direct hit from the old bombs, blew up, what was your uh, what was your reaction? Yeah, how you doing, Fred? Yeah, you know, part of it was uh, wow, no surprise there. We know we've seen races year after year, decade after decade, really struggle to get a foothold in the United States. You know, there's a lot of challenges that are unique to racing in North America. So, on a certain side, you know, it's like it's almost seemed inevitable that eventually it might uh, and eventually would end. But then, when you think about it and step back, you're like, man, it leaves a big hole in the racing. Really, I think came as a shock to a lot of people. The buzz we were hearing from riders with, and from uh, people involved uh, in the race that they were already plotting the course for 2020. So I think it was a rather uh, fast decision that came out of the organization. And one that really caught, I think, a lot, almost everyone really within U.S. cycling by surprise. So a mix of, well, you know, it was going to happen someday, but also it's like, man, it's going to be a huge loss for the USA uh, racing scene. Yeah, that's it. You hit it on the button. The sort of, uh, it's, you know, these big American bike races are not built to live forever. Um, we've seen this with USA Pro Challenge, Colorado Classic Men's Race, Coors Classic, Tour of Missouri, Tour of Georgia, uh, Tour de Pont. Um, all these big races are... Um, what I tell people is they're, they're born to die. You know, this isn't the Tour de France where a hundred years from now it's going to be going on. These are events that, um, the, the, you know, the challenging business climate, the challenging economics around these big races are such that they, they just don't live forever. You know, they lose money. If they're lucky, they break even, but, um, they don't, they don't make it very long. So the fact that, first of all, that the Tour of California made it 14 years was pretty amazing. And uh, both you and I have been doing a lot of calling around, a lot of reporting on this. And I'm sure you've heard this too, where riders were like, oh, you know, it had it had gotten to that level of regularity on the schedule that we thought, well, maybe this is going to be the one that like makes it to 15 years, 20 years, 25 years, 30 years. Maybe this is the American race that bucks the trend of all these things dying but uh, that wasn't the case. Um, the, the analogy, I have all these analogies that, that have popped into my mind that I use when explaining the economics of American bike racing because I've kind of been a student of this topic for the last decade or so. What are the analogies? The hot air balloon analogy? 
You want to hear my hot? Haven't heard, have you heard, haven't heard one? that one yet. Okay. Okay. Here, here as it goes. Um, a big American stage race. It's like a hot air balloon. I mean, it's glorious and beautiful to look at when it's airborne. And we all, you know, we, we look, look at it with wonder and there's all this praise that goes on around it. But we, you have to realize that so much energy and fuel and manpower goes into getting it into the air. And at the end of the day, its natural resting state is not in the air. It is on the ground. <laughs> the natural resting state of an American bike race is dead. <laughs> and it's only through tremendous amounts of energy that it's able to attain liftoff and be in the air for a set amount of time. But that is, you know, there's not, there, they've never built a hot air balloon that stays up in the air forever. <laughs> <laughs> It finally sinks like a lead balloon eventually. I also had a uh, like a cruise ship analogy, which is that from the moment it was born, the tour of California was to a certain degree set on a pathway to run into an iceberg or a piece of land. It was just sort of a matter of time. You know? <laughs> well, I'm glad, I'm glad your analogy is so optimistic and just full of cheer. Fred. Well, it's a, and, and that's, that's the thing, because you know, I've looked at online and people have understandably, look, whenever one of these races goes away, there's a lot of online chatter about, oh, you know, American bike racing is dead. The economics don't work. When are we going to learn our lesson? And to a certain degree, um, I agree with that sentiment, but We've seen this happen so many times now that I almost wonder if we just need to adjust our expectations and look at a race like the Tour of California, like a hot air balloon, a hot air balloon and like wrap our brain around the fact that like, hey, man, this is this great, wondrous, cool race. And it may not be there next year and it may not be there five years from now. So let's appreciate it in the moment while we have it. Um, because, you know, I got to say, you know, Tour of California went 14 years. I covered it six of those editions. I think I went to it as a fan another time. And, you know, the fan enthusiasm around that race in years one through five was huge. And the fan enthusiasm around that race in years uh, 11, 12, or 12, 13, and 14 was, it was okay. But it wasn't like, I mean, it it was not the same as it was 10, 11 years ago. Yeah, it's interesting that you pointed that out because we see that in a lot of races on the state in the states that you know the first couple of years it's kind of a new shiny uh, toy in, in the playpen. Locals kind of get behind it, the media gets behind it, and then it just becomes a nuisance. You know, it's uh, you know Americans hate road closures. Uh, you know, I think a lot of the uh, you know, there's a lot of headwinds when it comes to organizing a race in America. Just culturally, I think that people don't understand bike racing. You know, we've seen it. Out on the roads, riding our bikes. You know, there's, there's, it's a car culture. It's not a bike culture, and I think that kind of permeates through in the larger society that there's just not space, literally, on the roads to have a bike race. Whereas in Europe, you know, it's, it's part of the history. It's part of the culture there, and people make going to the bike race part of their events. Uh, part of their daily lives and then you know for the bigger races like the tour and the flanders you know it's like one of the highlights of the year it's like the super bowl their version of the super bowl uh whereas and i was also talking had a nice chat this week with uh peter stedna you know he, he i think he raced in, in several editions uh five or six editions of uh tour of california and what he pointed out was simply what you just alluded to there fred was in america bike Biking, bicycling, uh, bike racing, it's a participatory sport. It's not a spectator sport. And I don't think that's ever really going to change. Even like in the heyday of Le Monde or, or even with Armstrong, you know, people would come out and see the stars. 
but were they really there to see the bike race? It's not like in Europe where they're used to watching a bike race where people will stand on the side of the road for two or three hours to see the Peloton zip by. Americans just aren't like that. And the people that like bike racing, they themselves are bike riders. So it's a, it's a very niche. It's a niche of a niche. So it's never going to go mainstream. I remember back in the day, uh, Sam Aft, one of the great cycling journalists, used to work for the New York Times. He said, if the Tour de France and cycling didn't go mainstream with Armstrong, it never will. And of course, now, you know, with all the things that happened with all of his story, even worse so. But I think it's just so many factors that go into why this did not work at many levels. Yeah. So let's dig into it. Um, you know, this was last Tuesday. The news comes down. And the statement that was released from AEG was both opaque, but I, I do believe there was some truth behind it. This has been a very difficult decision to make, but the business fundamentals of the Amgen Tour of California have changed since we launched the race 14 years ago, while professional cycling globally continues to grow. And we are very proud of the work we have done to increase the relevance of professional cycling, particularly in the United States. It has become more challenging each year to uh, mount the race. The new reality has forced us to reevaluate our options. And we are actively assembling every aspect of our event to determine if there is business model that will allow us to successfully relaunch in 2021. That is the statement. So, Andy Hood, the last week I have spent lots of time calling people on the phone, uh, people who are, you know, officials with the race, former officials with the race, people who worked in the business of cycling, people who formerly were in the business of the race. And a picture has begun to emerge, um, which is... You know, look, it's a picture that we always kind of knew, which was a, you know, the race lost money. Um, for one of my sources told me that, you know, in those 14 years, there was one year in which the race came close to break even. So you're looking at a race that every year loses money. But as again, as I said, people who put these races on know that. Um, they, everyone who, you know, if you're putting on a big American stage race, you are very aware of the financial challenges facing the race. Um, but something that also emerged from these phone calls was that if you looked at 2005, 2006, when the race was originally launched, um, and AEG came on board and was working with Medalist Sports, and there was all this enthusiasm around American cycling because of the Lance Armstrong bubble. Um, there was also a tremendous amount of enthusiasm about um, live televised sports and the potential for live televised sports to generate future revenues. And so this is an important part of it because when you, you know, when you think about the, um, the costs that go into putting on a big American race like the Tour of California, there's, you know, there's the infrastructure costs, costs of closing down the roads, paying hotels, flying over teams, flying over journalists. Actually, we never got flown over. Putting journalists up in hotels, um, you know, having road closures, having staff, um, you know, VIP tents, all that stuff. That's millions and millions of dollars. There's also the cost of television production, which is also, yeah, you know, well over a million dollars. And then there is the cost of buying the TV time from uh, a broadcaster. And we've talked about this before, you know, the NFL gets paid by NBC to broadcast on NBC. Uh, the bike race pays NBC to be broadcast on NBC. It's a reversed economic model. But in 2005, 2006, um, the people who were planning this race were looking at that and thinking that long-term, that 
might reverse. If you could build a big enough TV audience around cycling, someday you might be able to generate a rights fee around it. Um, and that, that never happened. You know, the overhead expenses for putting on the race continued to grow every year. But the TV revenues that some people thought would show up, you know, year five, year seven, year 10, year 15, never did. So that speaks to economic challenges. Um, the other big part, so, you know, if you don't have TV revenues coming in, the revenues you do have coming in, sponsorship revenues. The race famously had a title sponsor in Amgen. And Amgen, from what I know, was keen to come back for 2020. They actually, their deal ran through 2020 and they were on board to come back for 2020, even though the race is not happening. So they will, they will not be happy. They will not be coming on board. But every year, if you work for one of these races, like you're having to sell sponsorships, sell enough sponsorships to cover as much of that overhead cost as possible. And also from what I know is that there was not linear growth there. It wasn't like year one, you sell 5 million, year two, you're at seven, year three, you're at eight. You know, it's, it's, you're not guaranteed to grow every year. Um, from what I understand, some years were good, some years were bad. And there were a couple of recent bad years. And, you know, I believe there were some sponsors, some big marquee sponsors whose deals were up at the end of 2019 that were not coming back from 2020. So the stage was set for a, a, a challenging uh, economic situation in 2020. Um, the stage was also set for just, you know, this was a race that had lost money since day one. And AEG, the company that owns it, had been okay, you know, covering the difference year in, year out. But at some point, even the biggest company uh, has to look at its balance sheet and make difficult decisions around properties that lose money. That's what I've been, that's what I've been told. Yeah, interesting uh, background there, Fred, because it just goes into really showing what has to go into a race like this. And we'd also heard from sources that uh, another source for revenue for bike races are the host cities. And we'd heard some grumblings over the years that towns were not so keen on paying. In fact, they were offering stages to towns for free or for very low fees just to be able to move the race around between the larger points in California that were paying. And just, I think the costs were increasing too for things like insurance, road closures, all those things were just kept going up and up. And it's interesting too, as you pointed out how, you know, back now 14 years ago, that's back even before the live streaming and before the Netflix were out there, that really live, live sports were the one place where people still would watch TV because live the streaming kind of concept hasn't really come on had come on board at that point yet so it was that was where all the money was going in terms of advertising in the future and that model has changed too over the last 10 years now you can stream a race live on TV uh, live on your laptop live on your iPhone but there's really the, the model there of making that profitable still has not worked out. Yeah. And so, you know, one thing that I keep coming back to when I just look at the whole picture is, okay, you have a race that lost money every year and you had really challenging uh, yes. economics that didn't ever really look like they were going to turn around. Yet, AEG continued to fund this thing. And I, I, I firmly believe this. I think that American cycling fandom does owe a debt of gratitude to AEG for keeping this race going, even though it didn't make economic sense 
in the traditional sense to do so. Um, and, you know, in my reporting around these big tours um, and a lot of these big cycling institutions in general, including world tour teams, you know, you, you always have the person who's underwriting the team and the race, who's basically writing the big check to cover the difference at the end of the day. And what causes someone to do that? Um, it's usually because they think that the race or the team or the whatever is good is because they like it. It maybe it's because they think it's a good thing for the state or they're a fan of the sport. Like there's it's usually a noble intention. And I, and I and I say this, you know, there's caveats to this, but there's usually noble intention that goes into the people that underwrite these big cycling establishments in um, US racing anyway. And and I do believe that AEG's decision to underwrite this thing year in year out um, was noble causes. You know, uh, look, AEG is part of the Anschutz empire. Phil Anschutz is, uh, I think he's like number 41 or number 42 on the Forbes list of richest um, Americans, number 41, $11.5 billion. Um, and, you know, he, he, I, I have to believe that at the, some base level, he thought that this race was good for California and good for the sport. And that's why you keep it going, even though, I mean, the losses were, and we're talking, look, when in, in aggregate, 14 years of big losses, we're talking, I would assume north of $50 million. That's my estimate based off of just sort of back of the napkin math. But we're talking a lot of money that's being lost here. Yeah, very interesting points. I think another thing that perhaps you could answer this, Fred, that comes to mind for me, just looking at this, comparing it to Europe. In Europe, really the the baseline of almost all of the uh, of the major bike racing events in Europe see a lot of government support, be it from local, regional governments. Uh, you know, you even saw that, of course, uh, the tour of Georgia and the tour of Missouri and then the states of Colorado. You know, usually it's the tourism agencies that get behind these things, even in the states. But I'm just wondering how much. Government government support did this race get? Because you look at uh, you know, the Tour de France, as much as they talk about that being a commercial event, a commercial for-profit race, without the support of all those communities, all the local regional governments, that race wouldn't exist. Bike racing wouldn't exist really as we know it in Europe right now. And I think that speaks to your earlier point, which is, hey, you look at the the local communities. I do think they got some tourism dollars and some state money that way. But, you know, Visit California was always a big sponsor. And Visit California is, you know, it's the state tourism board. But it really comes down to those local communities and the revenues that they could generate out of that. And, you know, I think there's a reason why if you look at the last three editions of the Tour of California, they went to the same cities and they used a lot of the same routes. And usually that means they do that because those are the cities that are still willing to ante up. Um, but look, it's just basic economics. Like the fewer cities you have that are willing to ante up, the more advantageous the economic system turns towards those cities so that you can actually demand you're going to get less out of them you know if there's a ton of competition between a cities a bunch of cities for your race to go there then you can demand a bit more and if it's just like hey you know we're uh you know stockton you came here last year you're going to come here next year um we're going to demand you know we're going to provide you with a little bit less so i think that There's just a number of different factors that combined to make this race go from having a challenging business model into a really bad business model. And even billionaires have their breaking point. Um, You know, do I know what the you know, what was the straw that broke the proverbial camel's back? I don't know. 
I think that's something that, you know, whoever was in the room with Mr. Anschutz when the decision was made, those people know, and maybe that information comes out and maybe it doesn't. But um, when you look at a situation like this, you know, I don't really know if you can blame the straw that breaks the camel's back because at some point you just have to add up the aggregate of all the money lost and say, okay, you know, we get it. The, you know, we get it. The race was, it was tough to put on. Somebody has to send a Conago to Mr. Bezos. Yeah. We need our next, we need an American second needs his next sugar daddy. <laughs> oh, but thank man. you, Mr. Anschutz. Thank you, Mr. Anschutz. And like I said, I agree with you, Fred, to this organization. It really emerged as really one of the world-class races on the calendar. Um, all the pros, I mean, all the swannies, all the mechanics, all the sport directors, you know, everyone really wanted to go to California. It was one of the big races of the year that in terms of like where you want to go race, everyone wanted to go race at California. You know, it had some bad weather some years, but generally roads were good. Hotels were very good. Food was good. And you're in California, man. Who's not going to like that? And I think something that has gotten forgotten uh – you know, 14 years later was the seismic shift that happened in American cycling when the Tour of California came onto the scene. That's a story that I've been working on and talking to people about that will probably be on villainews.com here, p- p- potentially before the podcast posts. Uh, you know, I'm a busy guy. I can't just write all the time, but that's a whole other story. But, you know, when you look back at the U.S. domestic scene in the early to mid-2000s, you know, the Tour DuPont and Tour de Trump was the previous big international race, and that died in 1996. So, you had this whole generation of racers who had grown up without a big international tour on home soil, then, you know, the teams would come and go. There was the Lance Armstrong bubble, which generated a ton of interest and a ton of support for international cycling. But for domestic cycling, like the the U.S. domestic scene, it was still a tough business. Um, I remember the big powerhouse squad was Saturn. And like, they would win everything and had Chris Horner and Tom Danielson and all these guys and gals on the squad. And then it was like 2003, the height of the Lance bubble and Saturn just went away. It was just like, okay, gone. Um, so you had these domestic teams that would battle each other week in, week out at Criteriums and US Pro and big road races, but there weren't these big international tours. 2003, there's the Tour of Georgia, which in 2004 had um, a ton of enthusiasm added to it when Lance and Postal and CSC showed up there. Um, but still, Georgia didn't have the same cachet as when this announcement comes out in 2005 that uh, California is going to host a big international tour in 2006. And, you know, the sources I talked to, guys who were racing, directing teams at the time, I mean, it blew their minds. They were just like, some of the language used was like, this is a dream come true. Holy shit, this is the Super Bowl. Like, people couldn't believe this was this was something that was like dreamed about. And all of a sudden, it was a reality. And the funniest part about the reality is that because the UCI schedule was so busy, the only part of the calendar where they could put this cool new American race, this Super Bowl of American cycling, was the second week of February. Yeah. Always great weather in California. You know, a little bit of hit or miss there on the coast. And man, it's a lot of missing there in those early years of the tour of California. Yeah. And plus, I mean, think of what that does for everyone's schedule. Uh, You know, for the international guys, it's like, okay, you know, 
we're going to go do this race in California. It'll be kind of a warm-up race. We'll get good weather. Don't need to be the fittest because it's not, you know, it, it's not a big giant race. We're going to go. It, it'll be fun. But for the domestic riders, it was like, this is our Super Bowl. And all of a sudden, the Super Bowl, imagine the Super Bowl fell during like preseason football. <laughs> like the Super Bowl was in August. <laughs> yeah. Kind of through, kind of, okay, boys, you got to hit your peak in February. So all these domestic guys are telling me, they're like, oh, yeah, you know, we had to like it. It threw this huge monkey wrench into our annual, you know, all of a sudden training camp, which had been traditionally in like December, January. Now it was like getting bumped up to November, December. Um, sponsors, you know, they these teams would work with their bike sponsor and jersey sponsor to get new kits and new bikes in. And you some years you could be kind of lazy. Oh, yeah, we'll get it in January or February. And all of a sudden it was like, no, we need the new bike and the new stuff in November and December because we're putting all the chips in the basket for California. And these riders would talk about, you know, just killing themselves in December, which is traditionally the off season or sort of the build phase. And these guys are doing really tough training camps just to try and be fit for California because not only was California this opportunity to race against the Pro Tour teams and test yourself, but it could, you know, people saw it as a springboard for if you had, if you popped a good result in California, there's the potential you could punch your ticket to the Pro Tour because it was the only opportunities that Pro Tour teams got to see the North American scene. And you know, that happened in the first year. The first year, uh, it was Team Toyota United, and I remember this guy. He was fast. Juan Jose Hayedo. You remember him, the Argentinian oh, sprinter? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wins two stages of uh, Tour of California. Next year, he's on CSC. I mean, he punched his ticket. He had a great world tour career, and it was because he won these two stages at California. Indeed, and, and you saw how quickly the race became to the American riders in the Peloton, you know, back in the day, you just look at the, you look at the, uh, the podiums in those early years and you're right, you know, it came in February. So the Euro pros were not really going to be flying very hard at, or even close at that point. Uh, you know, things changed a little bit when it became a world tour race and when it moved from February to March, you know, I think the level increased across the board, both internationally and just within the Peloton. But, you know, the American guys wanted to win this. You had Leipheimer, Horner, Van, uh, Van Garderen, Landis. All these guys won the race. And this is this is probably one of their uh, career highlights to win the Tour of California. Again, I was talking to Peter Stetna the other day, and he was telling stories about how the U.S. pros, you know, they always check in during a bike race. You know, they're racing somewhere in the middle of Italy or in some bag, you know, bad roads in Spain in February and they saddle up to go say, hey man, how's life? You know, you going to Cali. And everyone wanted to race California for the Americas. It was their show. It was their chance to race on home roads. Family and friends would come in. You know, uh, when Craddock raced a few years ago, he brought his parents in, all of his, his girlfriend, all his buddies came in there in the VIP tent. And it was the chance for the Americans to race on home roads. And as a pro, I think all the American teams and riders are really going to miss that. Oh yeah, I mean there, it's it leaves a huge hole in the schedule, and it leaves a huge gaping hole in American cycling. And you know, I, I do agree with some of the online chatter that I've seen about like, well, you know, this is kind of the big moment where we have to rethink things about what you know, what direction does American cycling go in? And I and I actually agree with that. I you know, some of the stuff I've been seeing online, I feel like it's been a little bit alarmist. And again, like I said, well, you know, maybe we all just have to adjust our expectations with these big races. But um, when you look at the calendar, I mean, 
This was a big block of racing in May. Um, this the, the Tour of California had morphed into, you know, after it went world tour, I think you saw an interesting new dynamic, which unfortunately, you know, the local teams got boxed out. The uh, continental teams got boxed out. No more Jelly Belly, no more um, action, no more some of these, you know, these teams that you always wanted to cheer for at California. And I, I personally disagreed with the decision to go world tour. I, I understood why they did it, but I thought that losing the continental teams meant the, the race lost a lot of local flavor. Um, and it forced some of these continental teams to make the jump up to Pro Conti, even though they didn't really have the financial backing to do so. Um, Rally is the only one that's been able to successfully hold on at that level. But um, I think that the interesting dynamic that California took on when it became World Tour was that it became this testing ground for World Tour stars of the future to like hone their craft and like learn how to win races. Uh, TJ Van Garderen said that in his interview. You're going to hear that in a little bit. But, you know, you look at 2015, Peter Sagan wins the overall. 2016, Julian Alaphilippe wins the overall. I mean, this is Alaphilippe several years before he became Julian Alaphilippe and he's winning the Tour of California. Uh, 2017 was George Bennett. 2018, Egan Bernal. I was there. Um, and, you know, everybody knew Egan Bernal was good, but it was sort of California was this opportunity for him to show everyone how good he was and learn how to win a race. And, and, and obviously this past year we saw Tade Pogachar. Um, I think it's interesting, and you heard Van Garderen say this, which is that California provided sort of like two of the three um, components that go into a challenging race that you want to win. Um, it had the terrain and it had the strong field, but it didn't have the like, you know, the windy, twisty roads, the bad weather, all those components that make you have to be like hyper-focused every single minute of every single stage of every single race. So if you are, are a world tour star of the future and you want to get an opportunity to win early and not like, you know, not have so much pressure on you that you're you're cracking, your team's going to send you to the Tour of California, not Perry Nice, because Perry Nice is actually going to be a, a harder race. But the Tour of California is almost like the... Uh, you know, it's almost like you see in boxing where they send some big champion up against some tomato can. <laughs> it's like, okay, go wallop him. You're going to learn how to be a winner. Yeah, indeed. And in fact, I think when it did go world tour, I think the race, when you talk to the riders, it did get much harder. The field was deeper and it was a trade-off. You know, the trade-off was, you know, is it a, a race for American teams to really build their programs? And then have the, the the European pros come over on vacation, or does it go world pro, world tour and really become part of the elite of the of the race? And it probably I think part of the decision probably tied into some of the economic problems that you talked about earlier, Fred, about how the race was probably struggling in terms of how to try to make this work. You know, what's the best way forward? And I think probably a lot of those discussions went around the idea: okay, let's make it world tour. Because immediately when it's a world tour race, the teams will take it way more seriously. And that means they'll bring their riders and they'll bring riders to win. Whereas before, I think the race was, you know, it had that element of, of being a race where the local kid could do well. But I think a lot of the European pros didn't really quite take it as seriously as once it became a world tour race. Yeah. The, the trade-off, though, on that end is that when you go from being a... Uh, 2.8 HC or 2. Point whatever it was to be in world tour, the overhead costs go way up too. So you're getting the prestige and you're getting the star riders, but 
the amount that you have to provide for those teams and the amount you have to spend, um, from what I understand, goes up dramatically. So, you know, something else to add to the bottom line. Good thing we weren't paying for it. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> you know, but it, we saw we did see the race, um, you know, really, I think it became uh, a race where where you said, uh, like you mentioned, that, you know, young riders can make an impact. And that's where I think that uh, the legacy really will be. It was, it was an a, American race, and then it evolved into this race where a young rider could really make a big splash. Even just the last couple of years, Casper uh, Askreen was third this year. You know, he was the guy that no one really even heard of going into, into 2019, had the great classic season, and then he kicked it off in, in the Tour of California, revealing that he could perhaps even emerge into a stage racer. You know, Iguita, Martinez, some of these other uh, Colombian riders have done very well over the years at the race. And then, uh, you know, man, having Bernal win that, that just puts, you know, that kind of just kicks up the prestige. When you look back at this in the history, it's like, that's one of the first big races that Bernal won. And man, within a year, he won the Tour de France. Yeah. I mean, when I was there this year, I think I wrote a piece. It was like, uh, Quick Step is unleashing its young guys at the Tour of California to just like, let them like rain havoc over the Peloton. And you saw um, Askreen win a stage, finished third overall. Remy Cavagna went on a big breakaway won a stage. He ended up winning a stage of the uh, Welta later this year. Um, they won another stage with their, uh, oh, I was that Dutch sprinter who's uh, Fabio Jakobsen. And then, you know, everybody was just taking turns going on these breakaways because they love the wide open roads and the challenge and the sunshine and the, you know, the challenging terrain. And so um, it was like, it was like world tour um, playpen. Just go out and like, just throw haymakers at people. So I, I, the question I have now, Hoodie is, Okay, so, you know, it was this big week-long race in May. Um, there were a lot of riders that would use it as preparation or sort of sharpening the spear. Well, actually, not sharpening the spear. As, as another jumping-off point towards the Tour de France. Like, if you weren't going to the Giro, then you would, chances are you'd go to California and get a block of racing in for the Tour. So, now that it's gone, what does that mean for the international calendar? Well, that's a very good point because it, you know obviously leaves a huge hole on the USA a cycling calendar, American cycling calendar. But it, you're exactly right; leaves a big hole in the international calendar because a lot of those guys that would come over to California, they might tack on some altitude, you know, go to Tahoe, go to Colorado, you know, hang around the states and train, you know, low pressure, do some hard work, be away from the European scene. You know, it's a great way to really, like you said, start building towards the Tour de France. You know, Peter Sagan was a fixture of the race. And it was a perfect segue, really, of coming in. It was kind of the first race after that Spring Classics block. You know, you're not going to go to the Giro before the tour. So for a lot of the big guys, it was the perfect way to transition into the summer racing season. And that's gone. And there's nothing really to replace it in Europe right now that remains to be seen. They usually can make adjustments fairly quickly. But there's nothing in the calendar right now that really is set up to, to fill that void. It'll be interesting, interesting to see if they do kind of juggle a few races around. I don't think it's going to happen going into 2020, simply because you know a lot of the courses are set and, and things are set up. But I think you wouldn't be surprised to see by 2021 a race kind of built up somewhere on the calendar to replace that yeah maybe that's where like the tour of Guangzhou or the tour of Turkey or uh, they have the hey ASO has this new tour of Saudi Arabia maybe that could be the the new May race yeah let's let's all go let's all pack off to the desert in May that sounds like fun <laughs> that sounds like fun oh, god I just go to the UAE tour alone in uh, in February that was hot enough well Tour of California, we will miss you. Um, you know, I have a couple favorite memories before we get out of here and hear from TJ. 
um, I'll share. Um, one was 2007 race. The state, the race opened with this time trial in downtown San Francisco, finished at Coit Tower. And uh, Levi Leipheimer ended up winning the stage. But the guy who was in the hot seat for the longest time, I think he was like the first or second guy to go. And he set the fastest time that, that w- was, the, was the fastest time until Levi went, actually. Jason Donald. And uh, he ended up losing by one second. He was one second away from beating Levi. I remember talking to Jason. He was like, ah, man, you know, he's like, you know, it's probably just another win for Levi, but it would have been like a career defining moment for me. Um, another great memory was uh, 2008. There was this crazy long, hard stage from Monterey down to San Luis Obispo that ended up being, and it went along Highway 1. It was beautiful, past San Simeon over the, uh, you know, the iconic bridges there, Big Sur. But it was just a cold, rainy, miserable day with a block headwind the whole time. It took the guys like seven hours to get from point A to point B, and they were all frozen and, you know, just really cold. And this breakaway forums with Hincapi, who'd won a bunch of stages, and some other guys and uh, this this young Canadian Dominique Roland. Do you remember him? Oh yeah. And so uh, Dominique and Hincapi are the strongest guys, and I was in the media car right ahead of them, and you know I could see them. They had attacked, and I think it was those two, and they were talking to each other. And I was like, "What the heck are they talking about?" And at some point, Hincapi said something to Roland, and Roland just like boom drops Hincapi, takes off. Drops the breakaway, solos in for the stage win. Yeah, that, probably for me. I mean, I, I never had the chance to actually come over and cover the Tour of California in my uh, little journalistic career. I've always been at the Giro. Uh, kind of always wanted to kind of get to Cali just to just to get back, have an In-N-Out burger, uh, you know, get some of that American California vibes. But the Giro always got in the way, so I can't complain about that too much. But I do remember, I think it was in – correct me if I'm wrong here. Was it 2016 when Stetna was making us come back uh, – he was uh, away on that big climb above, what was it, above Santa Barbara. He was almost there, almost there, you know, because I think he was just coming back from his crash, had that nasty crash and from the, in the uh, tour of the Basque Country, almost got his leg amputated, really. And then Alaphilippe just squirts by him, you know, little Julian. No one even knew who he was then. And now we know who Alaphilippe is. <laughs> Tour of California, we will miss you, and uh, we'll continue to do some reporting on this. And if any news and information filters out, please go to VelaNews.com. Uh, Hoodie, I think that's going to do it for you and me. Uh, we're going to throw to my interview with TJ Van Garderen talking about the Tour of California and the impact it had on his career. So we will catch up with everyone a week from today. All right. Thanks. So I want to talk about a couple different things, you know, the 2013 win and some of the memories you have from that, um, some of your thoughts you have on how you saw the race change over the years. But I was looking back through pro cycling stats and I had totally forgotten that you were actually, you were in the 2007 race, right? That was when there was like a composite, like a, it was like a junior or U23 team that uh, they had at the race. Yeah. Yeah, I did that race with uh, the national team. I'm trying to remember who all was on that team. It was uh, it was me, Chris Stockberger, Chad Byer, Sheldon Deeney, Caleb Fairley, Brent Bookwalter, John Devine. Um, I might be forgetting someone, but uh, but yeah, it was like that young group of guys, and I think 
you know, half of the team dropped out on stage three. Like I think I made it to stage four. Um, that was my first race out of the juniors. Like the first time I was on, you know, off of junior gears. And that was when the race was still in February. So it was like, it's like I go from racing, you know, on a 52, 14, uh, gear ratio to all of a sudden racing against Levi Leipheimer and Jens Voigt. And I was just getting shelled every day until finally I just couldn't even keep up anymore. But yeah, it was a good, uh, trial by fire sort of experience. What do you remember or recall about the, I guess, so there's the speed of the race that's high and there's how hard the stages are, et cetera. But what about like the confidence part? I mean, here you are, you're just out of the junior ranks and now you have this opportunity to line up next to some of these stars of the Tour de France. What what do you remember about that? And do you remember at all what that did to your just, just sort of your overall confidence as a bike racer? Um, honestly, I don't even know if it did any good things for me. Cause it was like, uh, I mean, it's good that I thought it was good that the race moved to May. So then some of the kids would have gotten a little bit more experience if they were even going to do it their first year out of juniors. But, uh, that being my first race, like in the juniors, we never raced more than like 110 or 120 K. So we never even really had a feed zone. Um, so I was trying to having to learn like everything, you know, taking feedback. Um, and in the juniors, you fight and fight and fight for nothing. So I was like, you know, always trying to get at the front and like fighting, like rubbing elbows up with people. And while well, people are like stopping to piss for a pee break. And I was like, people were probably looking at me like, wow, this kid is annoying. Um, so yeah, I kind of, I kind of left that race with my tail between my legs and, um, and we just like, man, I got a long ways to go if I'm gonna if I'm gonna make it even to be a pro, let alone be a good pro. Now I'm looking at the list here and it looks like you came back two thousand ten, two thousand eleven, and two thousand twelve. And if you look at the results from those uh years, you really made steady progression in the G C battle. Um what do you remember about those years and sort of what role they played in your progression as a GC rider? Uh, 2010, um, I went there. I was a Neo Pro with HTC. And that year, my teammate, my then teammate, uh, Michael Rogers, won. Um, I remember one day, I, I made it over the front group over this climb, and then Mick got a flat, and I gave him my wheel. So then I ended up in the Grappetto, but I remember riding really strong and the team, you know, being, um, being really happy with, uh, the work I was able to put in for Mick. And, uh, that did a lot for my confidence. And actually just two weeks after that, I got third place at the Dauphiné as a, as a 21 year old. So I think that race really, I think it did a lot for my confidence to, to work for Mick and to, and just, just a good form builder and, uh, so yeah, I came back the next year, 2011, still with HTC. And then I was thinking like, I went in there just talking all sorts of smack, like, uh, <laughs> like, man, I'm going to come in here and win this thing. Like I had a good Neo pro year and I'm like, yeah, it's my turn. It's my time. Like these old guys move out the way. And I just got beat down by Horner who just like, he just annihilated everyone. 
and I had to eat a big old slice of humble pie there. Um, I mean, not that I had a bad race. I think I finished fifth or something and I was best young rider. Um, but it was, it was pretty embarrassing after all the smack I was talking about how I'm just going to go in there, you know, clean up and did anything but. Let's see, 2012, that was what, my first year of BMC. Uh, I don't know, there, nothing was too memorable about that year. I think that was the year Robert Haysink won. Yeah, I think that was, might have been the first time we finished on. No, no. We was, I, I remember there was a finish on Baldy again, and Haysink just like lit everyone up on that climb. Um, and I think I finished like top five. I think I was just off the podium. Uh, yeah, and then 2013, that was the year that it finally came together for me. Do you think the win in 2013 happens if you didn't have that run of three, 10, 11, and 12 of, you know, testing yourself at the race and, um, also racing in Europe, but, you know, sort of, like you said, it, it became more of a priority after, 2010 when you helped Mick win you 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 know you you thought to yourself wow I could actually actually win this race do you think 2013 happens without those years probably not I mean um I think you know you gotta you gotta crawl before you can walk and you know I think I came in to cycling and I I popped some pretty impressive results and I just thought like okay I'm just gonna build on this and you know I'm just gonna uh, do X, Y, and Z. And it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes, sometimes things line up for you. And sometimes, sometimes other people's form is, is what it is at the moment. And, uh, and things happen not by accident, but, you know, just by, by circumstance. And, um, I don't know. I think I think definitely a big learning curve for me, especially with the tour of California, was just to try to be a bit humble. Because um, when I came in talking all that smack about how I was gonna how I was gonna do this and do that and clean up shop, I think I just put a big target on my back. Probably put myself under unneeded pressure and um, and some of those some of those old veterans like like Levi and like Horner didn't really like listening what was coming out of out of my mouth so they were like all right let's put this kid in this place um i think 2013 i came in with a bit more humility and more respect for my competitors and i just i raced the race as if uh it was just any other race and um and that was when i was finally able to come out with the victory you know it's been Six, seven years since then, you've done a ton of bike races and memory is a funny thing. Sometimes the, uh, you know, accrued bike racing memories can just knock old memories out, uh, out of the brain. Um, when you think back to 2013, what are the memories from the racing itself that still seem kind of vivid? Like, what are the ones that stay with you? I just remember, you know, the team had so much confidence in me. Um, and you know, you could just really feel it out there on the road. And, you know, I was kind of like, just, that was kind of when I saw about captain role and, you know, people were listening to me and people believed in, in what we were going to do. And, um, basically 
there was this one day we finished on Mount Diablo and I kind of just laid out like, all right, here's the plan tour. Mickey, you guys are going to control this part. And then you guys are going to ride this part of the climb. You guys are going to do this. And then I'm going to do this. And then this is how it's going to end up. And I'm going to be in yellow at the end. And, and it seemed like everything, everything that I said was going to happen just happened that day, which is pretty rare. The things, uh, play out the way you see it in your mind. Um, but that was just one of those rare days that it, it happened that way. And, uh, and yeah, it was, it was, it was pretty special because I too had just had my first child, um, like three or four weeks right before the start of that race. And, uh, was able to bring tiny little Ryland on the podium. Um, after I won the, the stage in San Jose, the time trial, I mean, I look back at pictures and I'm like, man, she was so tiny there. I can't even believe that they made the trip out to California. I mean, it was, uh, she probably shouldn't have been traveling, but you know, what the hell did we know at the time? Yeah. I mean, it was just a, it was just a special memory, special race. I mean, yeah, I've done hundreds and hundreds of races, but, uh, that 2013 tour of California, that's, that's one that, that that'll stay in the memory. Looking back on that race and the uh, following years of your career, what was the significance of that win? What did that do for you as you then turned your sights to, you know, Tour de France, Dauphiné, other bigger races that you wanted to win in Europe? I think that race just kind of taught me how to win. Um, you know, 2012 was a really good season for me. Uh, you know, that was when I went... I think I was like fifth in Paris Nice. I, uh, I was fifth in the Tour de France. You know, that was the year I won the white jersey. But then that year I was also second in the pro challenge and it looked, I was in the yellow jersey and it looked like I was going to win, but I just kind of, you know, fell apart right at the end. And, you know, Christian Vandeveld ended up winning that race. Um, so it was kind of like I was always up there. I was always in the hunt, you know, even in the biggest races on the biggest stage. And then when I was, when it came together and I was supposed to win, it was still like, I just wasn't able to get over the hump. So tour of California, I think was the, uh, the first time where it's like, okay, you know, you have the ability. Um, now you just, you just got to put it together. And I, from then on, I can look at, you know, from the pro challenge to, you know, a few good world tour stage victories in Europe. It all kind of started with that, tour of california that was like okay this is this is where you go from just placing to actually actually winning interesting yeah i mean i think that when i uh have been thinking about the impact that this race had on north american cycling and you know how sorely it will be missed i mean there's so many different angles there's the you know opportunity for the young guys coming up there was the battle between domestic riders and the international riders which always made for really fun follow but um that is yeah i think that's another component of you know talented north american riders getting an opportunity to win a race on home soil in uh you know in a setting that they might not in a situation where they might not have been given an opportunity to win races overseas. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's a few different paths to take to get to the world tour. I mean, some of it, you know, it might've been, um, being on the national team, 
and doing that whole program, or it could have been, you know, back in the day being on TIA Cref or, you know, BMC that kind of started out as a domestic team. And if you were able to grow with the team and you were one of the lucky ones and the more talented ones, you could grow alongside it enough to, to get into the world tour that way. Um, guys like Book Walter and Timmy Duggan were able to do that with, with their teams. But then another way to do it was to be on a domestic team and show up to these races like like California or like Georgia or the Pro Challenger Tour of Utah and you show out in front of in front of some of these, you know, world tour teams and then they'd be likely to pick you up. You know, that happened to Hanya Acevedo, that happened with Mike Woods, that happened with uh you know, Phil Guyman. Um you know, that was uh that was like some of these guys' opportunity to be to showcase their abilities in front of some world tour um riders on form. You know, Keel Reinen is another one. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, so if you take away California, that kind of takes away one avenue of these guys being able to get noticed. Um, I mean, cause I, the, the thing is world tour teams, they just don't go to Redmond. They don't go to Gila. So people could be cleaning up there, but they might just not get noticed. You know, you had a, uh, racing break from the tour of California, uh, in the years after 2013, um, looks like you returned in 2018 and I'm curious if you, you know, by that point, the, the race was a world tour race and I'm curious, what were the differences that you saw in the way that the race was raced, the level of competition, whether you saw much, uh, change at all? Oh, definitely. I mean, those world tour points are super valuable and, you know, teams, teams fight hard to get points. So if it's a race that has points or a race that doesn't have points, you can tell the pressure from, from the team. Um, and you know, the individual riders with, they'll ride harder to get them. Um, I mean, California was always a prestigious race because especially just with the American riders and the American teams, but it seemed to kind of just be confined to, uh, to just that. Um, it'd be like, you know, Trek, uh, Education First or Garmin or whoever it was at the time and BMC, you know, they, they were the American teams and it seemed like it would be this three team race that we'd be battling between us Americans. But then once it became world tour, it's like, okay, now, now everyone wants to come. Now it's, uh, now you're having to deal with the Alaphilippe's and the, uh, and the Egan Bernal's and, uh, the levels definitely just went, just skyrocketed up. Yeah, I thought there was an interesting dynamic that it took on too, which was it almost became like the proving ground for the stars of tomorrow, where, like you said, Igan Bernal, Pogachar, you know, some of these Higita, some of these young, you know, guys who you know are going to go on to do amazing things, and they're getting these opportunities to win at the Tour of California. The, t- the teams are looking at the Tour of California and Alaphilippe too and saying, okay, go win this race. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's, uh, it's definitely, I mean, it's, it's certainly not, um, a race that has the same stress level as, uh, as a Perry-Nice or, uh, I mean, Perry-Nice, that's like a, that's an extreme example, but even like, uh, 
even like a Delphine or tourist Swiss, it's not, it, it's not on the narrow roads. It's not, a. it's, it's not, um, it's still a U.S. race, but talent wise, it's, uh, you know, the level was high. So it's, it's kind of like, okay, you get the level, but you don't necessarily have to be the most, um, the most skilled in terms of, you know, crosswinds or narrow roads and positioning battle. So it's, it takes away one of those stresses to where it's like, yeah, for the young guys, it's like, okay, you're going to get a taste of what the level is. You're going to get, um, you're going to get to ride against top competition, but you don't necessarily have cobblestones and crosswind and sideways rain. And it's, it's still, the comfort level is still there. So it's, it's a good, uh, maturation process. Interesting. What was your reaction then when you heard the announcement that it was canceled for 2020? I was surprised and, um, yeah, definitely bummed because I always love racing that race. And, you know, it's, it's not very, we don't have very many opportunities to race against a home crowd. So to see that it disappeared, I just thought like, man, you know, it's, it almost seems like like California was the one that had stuck around for the longest. So maybe maybe it was going to be the one that that was going to create this culture and this heritage. And it wasn't going to be like Georgia or the Pro Challenge that are just we're here for a few years and uh, and then we're gone. You know, Missouri being another one. It seems like California was like, okay, it's finally starting to get that that legacy. You know, it it had that ten year anniversary going on fifteen, and to hear it stop was kind of like, oh man, that's uh, that's a bummer. <laughs> 